right, welcome to week five of our series called The Faces of Sin. A lot of people here this morning. Everybody loves hearing about sin, I guess. We're done talking about grace. It's all sin all the time. That's right. Uh, just kidding. We're always going to talk about grace. It's actually not a funny joke. But to understand grace, you got to understand sin, which is the heart of this series. So this week actually is uh, a sequel. It's part two of a sequel. If you, here, if you were here with us last week, um, we, uh, we looked at the, the beginning of Jonah's life. And uh, Jonah is, really his life is, if you boil it down, I think this kind of hits all of us where we live. Jonah is the story of a man who woke up one day and discovered that his plans for his life and God's plans for his life didn't line up. It's something we're all going to have to eventually deal with, and some of us, I'm, I'm sure, are dealing with it right now. And uh, when it came time for him to deal with that, he couldn't deal with that, so he took off running. And his story, the book of Jonah, a little four-chapter uh, minor prophet in the Old Testament, it is a... It's a timeless story about, on the one hand, the lengths that we go to to get away from God, and then on the other hand, the lengths that he is willing to go to to rescue us from ourselves, which if he didn't, uh, we don't have a whole lot to look forward to, but he does. By grace through faith in the name of Jesus, he does. And so last week, we focused really on our tendency to run. We looked at what Jonah did and the significance of all that, and I would encourage you if if you missed that teaching, uh, to go back and, and check that out this week, either on our app, website, you know, YouTube, whatever it is. You, don't, you can still understand this teaching if you, if you didn't catch last week. Don't get me wrong. It's just last week laid the foundation and is really going to kind of set the stage for the significance of some things that we're going to talk about today. But if you were here, you remember I ended our time together really just with two questions that the story of Jonah leaves us asking. Number one, what caused Jonah to do what he did? You know, it's one thing to understand that he ran and the significance of him running west when God told him to go and preach east, uh, but what was really going on that led him to do that? What was going on in the deep recesses of his heart? And then secondly, how's God going to set him straight? And that's really, those two questions are what I want to spend our time on this morning. So to do that, we're going to look at the, uh, the final scene in Jonah's life, the final chapter of the book of Jonah. It's only 11 verses. It's Jonah chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 11. It says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you were merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord asked, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. He made himself a shelter there and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up to provide shade over Jonah's head to ease his discomfort. Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and it withered. As the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. The sun beat down so much on Jonah's head that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, he replied, it is right. I'm angry enough to die. Bold statement, Jonah. <clears throat> so the Lord said, you cared about the plant which you did not labor over and did not grow. 
It appeared in a night and perished in a night. Should I not care about the great city of Nineveh, which has more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? This is God's Word. God bless you. <laughs> Sound like a balloon to my left ear. Um, okay, so to recap, last week uh, Jonah got, and this is Jonah chapter 1, he got thrown into the sea, uh, which is where we left. And if you were reading Jonah for the first time, uh, maybe you think that's kind of where the story ends, but of course Jonah famously does not die there. Instead, he is swallowed by a giant fish where he spends three days and three nights in a cold, dark, desolate, lonely, and I'm sure terrifying place, the belly of of that fish. And it's in that experience, as is so often the case in life, um, that he had a bit of a personal transformation. And so um, he, uh, he gets spit back out onto dry land, and then he listens to God. He does the thing that he should have done in the first place. He goes and he preaches to Nineveh, and uh, that's recorded for us in chapter 3. And Jonah delivers, an, it's an eight-word sermon to Nineveh. And with those eight words, that culture, top, I mean, king down to the cattle, is covered in sackcloth and ashes and experiences immediate, radical, cultural transformation. And you would expect that to be the end of the book of Jonah. If, one of the main reasons that I'm convinced that the Bible is legitimately authored by God instead of people is because that's not the end of Jonah. If people wrote the story of Jonah, it would end with chapter 3, Nineveh repented, and then a neat little like summary verse. You know, final verse of chapter 3, thus Jonah learned, you should always trust the Lord thy God, and then on to the next book. Instead, the end of Jonah is what I just finished reading to you. What you're seeing here in chapter 4 final scene of the story is that Jonah is absolutely devastated that his sermon worked, which I was telling the 9 a.m., this is so personally offensive to me as a pastor. You know, in 11 years, I have given altar calls that nobody responded to and went home and felt like a failure and played that game and did all that nonsense. Jonah reluctantly put eight words together. I got a nagging suspicion he didn't work too hard on that message and the entire city, top down, is like, oh my goodness, we've just heard from God, we've got to listen to this guy, and he wants to throw a pity party about it. Of course, the question that this raises is, what's that guy's problem? What is the deal with Jonah? And uh, there's actually a Bible verse, a single Bible verse, that encapsulates everything that is wrong with Jonah. It is a, it's James chapter 1, verse 8, and it perfectly describes everything that we observe and intuitively understand as wrong in the prophet Jonah. James chapter 1 verse 8 says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Uh, when James talks about a double-minded man, that, that phrase, double-minded, it's, it, he's talking about a lot more than just an intellectual condition. The, the Greek word there, if you spelled it out in English, it's, it, it looks like di-psychos, double-minded. And what it literally means is a, uh, it, it means two souls, or a, a two-hearted person, someone who has given their heart to more than one thing. What James is saying is that when you live that way, when you give your heart to more than one thing, then you will be unstable in all your ways. And I don't have to tell you, Jonah here is the poster child of that verse. Back in chapter 2, it, it certainly seems like he's turned the corner in his relationship with God, and he has this personal uh, grasp of grace that really seems to have transformed him. And then in chapter 4, he's telling God, I'm angry enough to die. I just, he's completely lost his will to live. What you're seeing in Jonah 
is a profound amount of instability. And the only way that you explain that, according to James, is this is a man uh, of two-heartedness. He's got a divided heart. On the one hand, I think it's, 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 it's true to say that Jonah really did love and serve the true God. But what is obviously true at the same time is that he also loved and he also served a rival God. And that's how you explain all the instability in his life. So let me just pause here before we get into it and point something out. The heart of this series has been not just let's look at Adam and Eve or Cain or King Saul or Jonah and, you know, there's such a mess and then I'll see you next week. The purpose of this series has been to look at these stories and hold them up as a mirror that gets us to face ourselves, something that uh, people will do just about anything to avoid doing. And so before we do that, let me just invite you to kind of ask yourself a number of questions. Um, If you were being real honest with yourself, just between you and God, could your life be described the way that Jonah's life is described in this book? Let me get a little bit more granular than that. Do you know what it's like Do you personally know what it's like for your emotions to be your master rather than your servant? To feel like they drive you, like they're steering the ship and you just can't get out from under them. You just can't rein them in. You know what that's like. Um, Do you know what it's like to go through periods of time in your life where you feel like you have nothing to live for? Doesn't mean you necessarily want to end your life. You just have lost the will to live. I'm sure there's a number of people listening that are coming from that place this morning. Or, you know, last question, when you look at Jonah, have you ever experienced uh, what you could call spiritual instability? Meaning, do you know what it's like to have a relationship with God that that one day is so life-giving to you, the next day is of no comfort to you at all? If if any of that resonates with any of you, then I just want to offer to you that perhaps the same thing going on in Jonah's heart is going on in your heart. Perhaps the root cause of the instability in your life and in my life is our divided heart, our two-heartedness. And so what I want to do today, I just want to look at the really two questions. First off, what exactly is a divided heart? What are we talking about when we talk about a divided heart? And secondly, how can that be dealt with? That'll serve as kind of a guide to our time together. So first and foremost, let's talk about what a divided heart is. Uh, Jonah chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. It says, but Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, isn't this what I said when I was still in my own country? That's why I fled toward Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Now, what you're given here, it's a... These verses are really, you could call it the anatomy of a divided heart. What you see here is on the one hand, you have the surface level sign, the kind of the surface level symptom that'll tell you you have a divided heart, and then the source underneath that. So first off, let's look at the sign. What Jonah's saying here essentially is the reason I ran away from your call in my life and didn't go to Nineveh the first time, God, Jonah says, the reason I did that is because I knew you were gracious. This this is a really interesting couple of verses because... uh, Often in the Bible, we're told what somebody did or didn't do. Rarely are we told what their motivation was. But Jonah is, is in no uncertain terms, letting you behind the scenes of his own heart here. And if you were reading Jonah for the first time, 
and you hear, okay, he's called to go to Nineveh, but he doesn't want to, you'd probably think, well, he was, he was afraid to go there. You know, he was, he was afraid that he would fail. Maybe they wouldn't listen to him, and he'd look like an idiot. Maybe something far worse would happen to him. But what Jonah is making plain here is the reason he didn't go to Nineveh wasn't that he was afraid of, of failing. He was afraid of succeeding. Jonah was an Israelite, and uh, as a prophet of God's people, he would have had a, a, a real... Um, robust understanding of the history of God's people. And when you look at God's dealing with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, two things become really clear. Number one, God has a way of extending grace to people who don't deserve it. Uh, And he keeps extending grace to people even though they don't appreciate it after they've received it. That's what the whole God's dealings with Israel in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, two of those, th- th- those are crystal clear about the nature and character of God. What Jonah is saying here, and this is pretty wild for him to admit this as plainly as he does, is he's saying, God, I knew that you were like that, and I was fine with you being gracious to me and my people. I just didn't want you to be like that toward anybody else. So this is undisguised. Like He's not even attempting to hide it. This is undisguised bigotry. This is what you could call toxic nationalism. This is Pharisaical religiosity. This is self-righteousness. You know, it's a whole bunch of things going on at once. But what it really boils down to, it's this us versus them, us the insiders, them the outsiders kind of mentality. And so the first thing that this final scene in Jonah's life hits the reader with is that if you look into your heart and you sense kind of the same tendencies that we see in Jonah here, meaning if, if when you look out at other people who are different than you, people who don't speak like you, people who don't look like you, people uh, who don't believe like you, people who don't live like you, or here's a real big one in our culture, people who don't (gasps) vote like you, just going to let the Holy Spirit do His work there, if you see in yourself this tendency that when you see people like that, you see people that you could never fathom entering into a relationship with. You could never fathom loving or serving or honoring or respecting. And if you got real honest, you kind of just want to see them get what you believe is coming to them uh, in a negative way, obviously. If you see that in yourself, the, the very first thing that the story of Jonah has shown us here is that is the most overt and obvious surface-level symptom that you have a divided heart. But going a little bit deeper than that, this, this, um, these opening verses also show us the source of a divided heart. <clears throat> and this is where we get a little bit psychological. This is where I think the story of Jonah hits us all where we live. And it, what I'm about to say really explains everything, not only that's wrong with Jonah, but everything that's wrong with us. Bold statement to make, but it's the Bible, it's not me, so I have confidence. In verse 3, Jonah says, it's better for me to die than to live. For, I just want you to consider it this way. For Jonah to say, it's better for me to die, at this point, it's, it's more favorable for me to die than keep on living. What he's saying is, he's kind of put this in layman's terms, he's saying something was in my life that gave my life meaning. Now that that thing is threatened or gone, I don't really see a reason to continue. That's what he's saying. Now, what that proves, obviously, is that whatever that thing was, that was his God. That was his functional God. Because that was the thing that he was deriving his ultimate meaning in life from, and and I say this to say, that, ladies and gentlemen, is the source of everything that went wrong in Jonah's life, everything that's gone wrong in every human heart, that is the source of a divided heart. It is deriving your meaning in life from something alongside of or instead of 
the true God. I'm going to say that one more time. The source of a divided heart is deriving your meaning in life from something alongside of or instead of the true God. All right, let me just camp out on here for, for, for a moment. Most people, obviously, do not use the kind of flamboyant language that Jonah uses here, and they don't aim it directly at God. Uh, and, and so I think it's very easy, and I've, I've sort of made this point in different ways at, you know, at some point in all the teachings of this series so far. It's really easy to look at Jonah here and see this kind of emotionally volatile guy that's lost the plot, and you say, well, you know, he's crazy, but I've never gotten to that point in my life, so, you know, kudos to me, I'm doing better than Jonah was, I guess. It's easy to excuse yourself when you read this. I just think that that's really unwise to do so. Understand this. When Jonah says it's better for me to die, all he's really saying, and maybe if you search yourself, you can just relate to this. Would you please have the vulnerability to ask yourself if this isn't going on in your life right now? All Jonah's saying here, he's saying, my life has lost all meaning. He's not suicidal. It's not like he's dealing with suicidal ideation. So please don't, please don't read this and think that if you're not actively considering ending your life, then you can't relate to Jonah here. Jonah's not suicidal. He's not talking about ending his life. He's just lost the desire to live. And those are two completely different things. And actually, just yesterday, when I was looking at Jonah's words here, uh, you know, I know off the top of my head, I've been teaching the Bible for 11 years, so I should know, that there are a number of people in the Old Testament that get to this same place that, that Jonah was in. So I did probably the strangest Google search of my life. I, I, I asked Google, it's a really weird way to phrase that, but I Googleized uh, how many people in the Old Testament wanted to not live any longer. Not a super normal Google search, but it related to the sermon, so don't look at me weird. I came across an article from someone, I'm confident I'm not pronouncing this right, something like Hane Lowland Levinson. She's an associate professor at Minnesota, and she, she, uh, her article, the article that I came across, is actually based on a book. It was called Death Wishes in the Hebrew Bible. And it was a survey of this exact topic, so you might think I'm weird, but at least I didn't write a whole book about it, guys. <laughs> uh, what, what, what she revealed in the article was that no less than nine different people uh, got to the same place that Jonah was here. And when you look at who those nine people were, I think something really powerful comes to the surface. I'll, I'll read them to you. The nine people that got to the place where they really didn't want to live any longer, Rebecca, Rachel, the Israelite nation as a whole, there's a scene where they all say, hey, we're done here, we're not having fun anymore. Rebecca, Rachel, the Israelites, Moses, David, Elijah, Jeremiah, Job, and I, uh, uh, Jonah here. Now, you look at those nine people, a lot of them are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the, you know, the hall of fame, like the, the heroes of the faith kind of thing. And so here's the first thing that was impressed on me when I kind of stood, stood back from this. The people that, that were brought to this place in the Bible, they're stronger than you and I are. Uh, God was more real to them than he often is to us. And God used them in unbelievably powerful ways to advance his kingdom and his kind of history of salvation, his salvific work in the world. And yet these people were still brought to that place. What that should, should do at the very least is cause you and I to humble ourselves and, and at least entertain the idea that, that we could find ourselves here as well. And again, this isn't about Jonah wanting to end his life. This is about Jonah losing the will to live. He's just woken up one day, and his life has taken a turn of events to the point that now he, he just doesn't know who he is anymore. 
He feels aimless. He feels purposeless. He can't really find a good reason to get out of bed in the morning. And the root cause of all of that, and if you looked at the other eight people that get to this point, you would see the same thing in their lives. The the root cause of it is Jonah's lost his meaning in life because he's lost whatever false God he devoted himself to, which always eventually happens when something takes the place of God. So the question is, what was Jonah's false God? And it's pretty obvious in this story. Jonah's false God was the national security of his people. Right, the reason that he was losing his mind at the thought of God not destroying Nineveh was because he knew how much of a threat Nineveh, which was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, he knew what kind of threat they represented to his people. And the wild thing is, he wasn't wrong. Jonah is not, um, he's not irrational in his fears here. I'll say this at least. It's understandable why he responded the way that he did, because history tells us that not long after Jonah... The nation of Assyria, with Nineveh as the capital, it did attack Israel, and it destroyed 10 of Israel's 12 tribes, which is something that really historically they, have, they haven't even recovered from to this day. And so Jonah's fears weren't necessarily unfounded. And, and I just want to make the point, it's of course not a wrong thing that Jonah desired the national security of his people. Of course that's a good thing to desire. Jonah loved his country. Jonah was a patriot. Jonah loved his countrymen. He loved his people. But the point is, when love for your people uh, becomes a disdain for everyone that you don't consider to be your people, that's when you know something has taken the place of God in your life. Something has functionally become a false god, an idol. And that really is what's going on in, in Jonah's heart here. He's, he's, he's this two-hearted prophet that loved and served the true God, but he also loved the false god of national security. And, and this is what, when you really look at these stories, they should really give us they should make us introspect perhaps a lot more than we do because what, what you're seeing in Jonah is that all of his life, as long as serving the true, co- the true God did not cost him his rival God, he was good to go. Like if, if you would have seen Jonah, interacted with Jonah every day of his life prior to the day God came and said, I want you to go to Nineveh, he would have looked like an upstanding citizen, a fully devoted follower of God, a great example, and a leader in God's community. But the day that God put him in a position, I don't think any of us are far from a situation like this. The day that God put Jonah in a position where serving the true God cost him his rival God, he cut and ran on the true God. And he turns into something that he himself wouldn't have recognized here in Jonah chapter 4. And so if that's the, that's the, the, the sign, the surface level sign and the source of a divided heart, the, the question is, and we've got to answer this or we've wasted all of our time, how can a divided heart be dealt with? I'm going to give you three answers to that question, but before I do, let me, let me make it crystal clear what we're actually talking about. The opposite of a divided heart, according to Scripture, it's, a, it's what Scripture refers to as a pure heart. It's not a perfect heart. It's not somebody that never sins anymore. We're not going to get there until Jesus finishes the work that he began in us. But a, a single heart, a pure heart, is simply a heart that loves and serves God for who he is. If, if, we have the, if we have the security to face ourselves, every one of us has this tendency to, to love and to worship and to serve God, um, but to treat him as a means to an end. There's this natural tendency in every human heart to approach God with this belief that if I just do the right things and press the right buttons and live the right life, then I'll get the life from God that I'm convinced he owes me and I need in order to be happy. Healing a divided heart and, and developing a pure heart is simply getting to the point in life where you love him and you serve him without agenda, which is the only place that real freedom is found. So the question is, how do you get there? 
How do you heal a divided heart? I want to give you three answers to that question based on the, the, um, the book of Jonah, and then we'll conclude. Here's the, here's the first answer. <clears throat> Number one, the story of Jonah shows us that healing a divided heart is a process. This is one of the most dominant themes in the book of Jonah. All right, if, if you trace Jonah's life start to finish, we talked about it last week, he starts off running from God, he ends up on a boat, and then God hurls a storm after him. And so, if you remember, Jonah, in the midst of that storm, he looks like he's starting to get it. Uh, he recognizes that God is the one that sent the storm, meaning he's starting to understand, he's starting to see God's hand, you know, at work, even in the troubles of his life, which is a, that's a huge point of growth for anybody. Uh, with that, he's starting to, to assume responsibility, and he even looks at, at the sailors and says, you all should not be paying for my mistakes. Go ahead and throw me into the ocean. There, there looks like that looks like growth in Jonah's life. We, you know, that, that at least gives us hope that maybe this guy's starting to get it. And, you know, for all Jonah knew, that was going to be the end of his story. But, of course, it's not. God appointed this fish, and then he gets, you know, swallowed up, and he's in the belly of this fish for three days. At the very end of that experience, this is the final verse in chapter 2, Jonah has this iconic phrase where he says, salvation belongs to the Lord. And you understand the significance of that when you look at who Jonah was before that prayer. What Jonah's saying there is, I understand now for the first time in my life, salvation doesn't belong to me. Jonah's saying, I understand that salvation, I don't have the right to give or withhold a, a salvation that belongs primarily to God. He gave it to me by grace. Who am I to stop the flow of grace to somebody else? That is a huge turning point in Jonah's life. And then he actually goes to Nineveh. You know, he faces the thing that every instinct of his heart was telling him run away from. He goes to the place that every instinct was saying, don't go there. I mean, if we're honest, some of us have yet to do that in our own lives. Jonah does that, and he does preach. That's a huge moment for him. But then, of course, here we are in Jonah chapter 4, and he's fallen to pieces. And God's coming to him, and he's asking him questions, and he's acting like a wonderful counselor and trying to get him to face himself. And there's this kind of weird object lesson with vines and shelters and worms, and we're going to get to that in a second. But the point is, when you zoom out from all of that and you ask yourself, well, what's the point of that? Why are we, why are we given a behind-the-scenes in Jonah's life that way? The point of that is to show us that healing a divided heart in an individual, it's a process. And it takes a whole lot of time and storms and fish and vines being torn up and sunburn and all that stuff. All right, a number of years ago, uh, Katie and I were... Um, we were having issues with our dryer, not with our relationship, thankfully, just with our dryer. But it, it affected us no less profoundly. Uh, the dryer would run for like a few minutes, and then it would stop, and I am, I am not mechanically inclined. I'm great at holding a flashlight and getting yelled at. That's about all I got out of my childhood. Thanks, Dad, for teaching me how to. I'm just kidding. I'm just not mechanically inclined. He tried his best. I still call him and ask, me, ask him to fix things. But... Uh, I walked around the back of my house, and I saw, you know, the dryer exhaust, and, and I, lo and behold, the vent with the flaps on it that's supposed to be there had been um, savagely broken off by a rogue starling who became my mortal enemy that day. And uh, so I called up my, my father-in-law, and we borrowed a ladder from my neighbor, and, um, and we threw it up against the house, and I climbed up there, and it was a deeply unsettling experience because there was all this kind of hay and debris, and it just looked and smelled really gross. And so I had to shove my hand in there. And I got my arm in there as far as my arm could go against every instinct of my heart and was just blown away at how much a starling had packed in there, like preparing for some sort of bird apocalypse, truly unsettling. 
So I got several pounds of this stuff out, but then I looked and I could see that the issue was deeper than my hand could reach. And so I went back down and looked around and first thing that that came to mind was the tongs from my grill, which I'm happy to say have since been replaced. Uh, But I grabbed the tongs, I climbed back up the ladder, I jammed them in there, I got a little bit more debris out, but still the problem was deeper. And so then my my father-in-law... rigged this dowel rod with a, a coat hanger and, you know, whatever. And so I, I jammed that in there and got a little bit further. And, and so anyway, the fourth and final step of this is I used my, my handy-dandy rope skills that the fire department taught me, and I strapped my vacuum to my back, looked like a Ghostbuster. <laughs> and I know there's, there's got to be footage that my neighbors have that they haven't revealed to me, but I can't blame them. I might have done the same thing. So anyway, I jammed the thing in there and turned it on. And even that didn't get to the root of the problem, but by God's grace, the dryer gets the job done today. And so the reason I tell that story is because every time I thought I got to the bottom of the issue, every time I thought, okay, surely we've dealt with it, we've gotten to the heart of it, I discovered that the problem went even deeper than I thought it did. And and I'm saying this to say, obviously, the book of Jonah is a four-chapter reminder that every human heart is just like that. The truth is, Jonah actually did begin to change when God threw that storm in his life. And he did begin to change when he was in the belly of that fish. And he did begin to change when he marched through Nineveh. But this final scene in his life in chapter 4 is a reminder he still had a lot of changing left to do. Welcome to the human condition, right? Which I think is actually a profoundly encouraging thing. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I get, I, get, I think one of, the, one of the main reasons for my discouragement that often besets me in my life. I'm a perfectionist at heart. I'm a firstborn. I'm an engram one. I don't know if anything, any of those words or terms mean anything to you. But I, get, I just get to the point where I just, I'll even tell Katie, man, why, why aren't I past this yet? Why aren't I wiser than this? Why aren't I stronger than this? Why do I still let these stupid, superficial, petty things bother me like they do? And I just say, if, if you're like me, if you can resonate with that, to anybody who, who expects deep and lasting change, as I so often do, to anybody who expects deep and lasting change to be the sort of thing that happens in a moment, that happens because you prayed a prayer, or because you walked an aisle, or because you made a decision, or you got baptized, or you had an emotional moment of catharsis in a worship service or while listening to a message, the book of Jonah says it doesn't exactly work like that. And that does not mean that the change back then in your life was not real It doesn't negate that that change was real. It simply means be prepared for the reality that you got more changing to do before Jesus calls you home. The truth is, and and not only is this the story of Jonah, it's the story of everybody that God deals with in Old and New Testament. The day that we begin interacting with the real God of the Bible instead of a God of our, our imagination or a God of our creation like we're also inclined to do, When you know you're dealing with the real God of the Bible, the day that you enter into a relationship with him, the truth is we have no idea what we're signing up for. We have no idea how far he's going to take us, what he needs to lead us through, and how painful it's going to be because healing a divided heart, number one, is a process. Um, Amen? Amen. Secondly, secondly here, uh, what the story of Jonah also shows us and I don't particularly like this idea, but I think we all know that it's true. Uh, healing a divided heart, number two, can be painful. All right, the second thing that this story makes crystal clear is that when God begins dealing with us in order to heal our divided hearts, which we're all suffering from, the way that he does that is he takes away a comfort in our life so that we can see what we really rely on. All right, in this passage, God allows this comfortable thing to grow up in Jonah's life. It was this, this vine that provided shade. 
Um, and that probably doesn't seem like a big deal to us because most of us have never spent any time uh, in a desert where temperatures reach 120 degrees and there's no shade to be found. Uh, I'm sure there's a number of people, we have a lot of military in our church and a number of uh, men and women who serve, you probably know exactly what that's like. I personally don't know what that's like, but I have the next best thing. I saw the episode of Man vs. Wild starring Bear Grylls where he went to the Sahara Desert. So in that episode, it was a great episode. In that episode, um, Bear had three of his, we're on a first name basis, Bear and I, Bear had three of his uh, camera crew evacuated for heat-related emergencies. It never really happened on any other of the episodes, which was, you know, really gave you a picture of uh, just how, how quickly you can dehydrate out there. But I remember there's this one really disgusting scene. There's a lot of those, if you've ever seen Man vs. Wild, where a camel spider was chasing him around a sand dune, which looks like if evil became an animal, you, you, that's a camel spider, if you haven't seen one. And it starts chasing him around this sand dune, but what was wild is it wasn't trying to attack him. It was just so desperate to stand in the shade that he himself was casting with his body. But the point is, that's how precious shade is out there in an environment like that. And what God does here is uh, he allows Jonah to lose that precious shade. He takes that precious shade away from Jonah so that Jonah uh, can kind of learn a lesson about himself. And I'm saying this to say that's the way that God works with all of us. Right? Every human heart has this tendency to look to something. We all have a tendency to look to something the way that Jonah was looking to his vines, meaning there's, there's some kind of refuge that we all, maybe it's, it's more than just one thing, but usually it's one thing primarily that we have a tendency to go back to again and again and again to find refuge in, to find comfort in, to help us deal with the pressures and the stresses of life, to help us get through life, or maybe to numb us up from the pain of life, whatever it is, however you want to phrase that. And so our vines basically are the things that we look to uh, to be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. The problem with that is nothing in this world, I know that you know this, but nothing in this world, despite the fact that we got to learn this lesson a million times over, nothing down here can give us the safety and the comfort and the security and the protection that our hearts so desperately long for. And so what God will do, and I'd say this is one of the hallmarks that the real God of the Bible is dealing with you, is he takes whatever that thing is that you've told yourself, I need to have that, one of the hallmarks that the real God of the Bible is dealing with you is he takes that thing away. Now, if you're like me, maybe that leaves you asking the question, cool, I understand that God does it like that, but why? Why didn't God just take the, you know, I'm a direct person. I like to, you know, shoot straight with people. I like to keep it real. So why didn't God just speak directly? Why didn't he just tell us what we need to hear? Here's the answer. And I know that you know that this is true. None of us learn that way. Nobody learns that they're a sinner by being told, just like nobody learns that they're loved by being told. We have to be shown over and over and over again. And in the same way, nobody changes because just because somebody pops into their life one day and says, hey, the reason for the emotional and spiritual instability and turbulence in your life is you're looking outside of God for things that can only be found inside of God. So just love him more than all that stuff. All right, I'm glad we had this talk little uncomfortable, but I'm looking forward to the immediate transformation that takes place in your life. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, and again, you hear me use this caveat a lot, I know that you know what I'm about to say is true. I know that there's, you know, dozens of people listening right now that this is your personal story. It might be something that God is doing in your life right now. Here's the point. We don't need somebody to just tell us what we need to hear. What we need 
is to have our self-salvation schemes blow up in our faces. What we need is to have our man-made shelters like the one that Jonah built collapse on us. What we need is for God to tear up our vines and cause us a great deal of discomfort over and over and over again in order for us to even begin to start to change in deep and lasting ways. And so what God is saying to Jonah here and what he's saying to all of us who read the story of Jonah, he's he's simply saying, listen, if you're going to be the kind of person that I desire you to be, which is actually the kind of person that you desire to be. God is saying, if, you're, if, if I'm going to make you a person of, of love and compassion instead of a person of, of self-pity and self-centeredness, God's saying, if I'm going to make you a person who's able to weather the storms of life with real peace and real calm and real poise instead of a person constantly crippled and beset by their own emotional and spiritual instability, if I'm going to make you a person like that, God is saying here, I'm going to need to deal with you like this. I'm going to need to tear your vines up over and over and over, and you're going, to, you're going to need to get sunburned at least one more time until your heart finally, finally learns to find the refuge that you're really looking for in me, says God. <clears throat> now, I'm almost done, and we're going to get on to our last point here, but just before I do that, I want to read something to you. <clears throat> in the King James Version of the Bible, it doesn't call Jonah's plant a plant. It calls it a gourd. And John Newton, who is a famous hymn writer, wrote a a hymn based on this scene in Jonah's life. And it's all about the way that God dealt with him and the way that God deals with us. And I came across it when I was putting this teaching together, and I thought I would read it to you. Um, And I just ask you, would you take a moment as I read these, the, the stanzas of this hymn, and would you just prayerfully consider whether or not what I'm about to read you is what is happening in your life right now? All right, listen to this. He said, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. All right, that was John Newton's request. He wanted what everybody wants. He wanted the salvation that was his to change him in deeper ways. He wanted more love and joy and peace and all that kind of stuff that everybody's looking for. That's what he prayed. Right after this, he talks about how he hoped God was going to answer that request. He says, I hoped that in some favored hour, at once, he'd answer my request. And by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Point is, John Newton hoped what we all hope, which is that God is just going to cause us to teleport down the path of our sanctification process. And we all want God to put us in the microwave, and instead he insists on the slow cooker. But we want it to be instant. Just, you know, let me rub the lamp the right way and just rid me of these fears. Rid me of this concern for what people think of me. Rid me of this anxiety. Rid me of this depression. Just give me a heart that's so singularly devoted to you that I can find freedom. That's what he wanted. That's what we all want. And then he says what God actually did in his life. And here's the part I would just ask you, would you read these words back into your own life and see if this isn't for you? He said, instead, instead of this, God made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. That is a surefire sign you're getting closer to the real God of the Bible. You can see your sin more clearly. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry power of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. 
Cross all the fair designs I schemed. Here it is. Blasted my gourds and laid me low. Again, I would say one of the only ways that you can know that you are dealing with not a God that you created, but a God who created you is he will lay you low. I think about Saul of Tarsus, Acts chapter 9, knocked flat on his back and blinded. What he collided with that day was a God that he did not create. He collided with a God that created him. One of the only ways, one of the surefire ways you know you are interacting with a, with a real God is he will eventually, somewhere along the line, he will lay you low. He says, Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. Last line. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. I am so convinced that if we changed in any other way, God would deal with us differently, but we don't, so he deals with us like this. Healing a divided heart can be painful. But thirdly, this will be our last idea this morning, Jonah shows us that healing a divided heart requires a personal grasp of grace. It's fine to talk about how God will remove comforts from our lives, but the only way that that does anything other than make us uncomfortable, the only way that that leads to any kind of transformation is if in and through that, it leads us to a personal grasp of grace. And we see that back in in chapter 2. The first time that Jonah really begins to turn the corner in his life is when he has a personal grasp of grace. And in, in the belly of the fish, he prays and he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be there. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What was happening in his life is really for the first time, he was beginning to personally encounter the grace that he only intellectually knew about prior to that point, and it started to change him. And so this brings us to what is really the strangest part of the story of Jonah. And I, I, had, to, I had to end by touching on this because I just feel like I would be completely letting you all down and dropping the ball if I didn't. When you zoom out uh, from, from Jonah's story, it starts off, he's given a job by God, and he falls flat on his face. And so God, you know, sort of picks him up and dusts him off and brings him back. And Jonah's this guy that, you know, he looks like he's starting to get it, but then he blows it again. But he looks like he might be starting to get it more than he did last time. And, and then so here, here we are at the final scene in this story. There is no Jonah chapter 5. And Jonah's completely fallen apart at the seams, and God is just so patient with him, and he's so kind with him. And he's coming to him, and he's, and he's not blowing him out of the water. He's asking him questions. He's counseling him. He's trying to get him to face himself, and he's asking Jonah these really, like, potentially life-changing questions. And then the book of Jonah just ends. The book of Jonah, just consider, the book of Jonah ends with a question God answers. It's not a rhetorical question. It's a question that Jonah needed to answer, but it ends before we even get to find out what his answer is. And then it's just on to Micah, on to the next book. When you look at Jonah compared to the other 65, this has got to be the most abrupt and inappropriate feeling ending to any story in the entire Bible. And that right there is so instructive. When you read Jonah, start to finish, it's like this tension is building and the spear is headed right for Jonah. And then right here at the end, he, he at the last second, he steps out of the way, and now the spear's headed for you, the reader. And now all the questions that were hovering over Jonah's head, they're hovering over your and my head because, and this is the point, we're all Jonah. Right? Everybody who listens to this, everybody listening to me right now, I'm, I'm so confident, you know what it's like to wake up one day and realize 
that your plans for your life and God's plans for your life just don't line up. Everybody who listens to this, we all know what it's like to run out on God. We all know. Scripture says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. We've, We've all done that. We all know what it's like to find ourselves in the middle of a storm that at least a part of us can recognize, yeah, I'm in the middle of this because of choices that I made. We all know what it's like, like Jonah, to fail to extend the grace that we've received. And we all know what it's like to burn a lot of calories. And again, I would say, maybe this is somebody this morning, we all know what it's like to burn a lot of calories being angry and bitter at God because he just doesn't seem to do things the way that we're so convinced he should be doing them. And so the book of Jonah ends with that resolution because it's not really about Jonah's story, it's about your story, and it's about my story. And the final question that this this book is designed to leave the reader with And I'll just make it personal for you. The question that Jonah really demands we ask ourselves is, will you continue to preserve for yourself the right to decide whether or not God's will fits into your tiny understanding of how your life is supposed to go, or are you finally going to trust him, that he knows better and that he wants what is best for you? And I'll tell you, the most hopeful part of the story of Jonah is, even though we don't see it in these four chapters, we have every reason to believe that Jonah eventually did get it, that he eventually did have a life-transforming personal encounter with the grace of God because, think of it this way, how do you think we got the story of Jonah? Jonah records a number of instances that were exclusively between him and God that no one else would have, could have possibly had access to. You know, it's not like he had anybody with him in the belly of the fish or these, these really intimate interactions between him and God where he's dealing with the deep issues of the heart. The only way that we could have even had this story is if Jonah wrote it himself or gave it to somebody who did write it. You've got to ask yourself, who in their right mind would put a story that makes, <laughs> that makes them look like the book of Jonah makes Jonah look, who on earth would air their own dirty laundry like this? This story makes Jonah, without fail, look petty and small and self-centered and shallow and pathetic over and over, and there's almost no redeeming qualities to it whatsoever. What kind of lunatic would voluntarily put their own business out there? There's only one answer to that. Somebody that has been completely set free by the grace of God. Somebody that has been made so joyfully secure by the love of God that they're now free to face themselves to own all of their mistakes, to tell the story of the absolute nightmare of an individual they've been because they know that while they are more sinful than they dare believe, at the very same time they're more loved than they dare hope, which is the message of the gospel. That's the only way that you can explain the fact that we even have a book of Jonah. And so here's the final thing I'd leave you with today, and this is so hopeful. I hope this encourages somebody. The point is, if God can turn around somebody like Jonah and his divided heart, he can turn around people like you and me. He's been doing it for a long time, and he's good at what he does. What we need is the same thing that Jonah needed. We need a personal encounter with the grace of God. Up here in verse 2, Jonah says, I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. Now, he knew that intellectually at that point in his life, but what he needed then And what you and I need now and really every moment of our time on this planet is we need to know that God is merciful and compassionate to us. We need to know that God is slow to become angry and rich in faithful love to us. And we need to know that the God of the Bible is a God who relents from sending disaster to us 
simply because he loves us. And if ever we doubt that, Calvary's the proof. Calvary is the literal, historical evidence that God was willing to send disaster on his own son so that he would not have to send it on you and me. And you and I need to be brought to that place where that love becomes real to us over and over. No matter how many storms or fish or vines God's got to tear apart, whatever he needs to do, we need to be brought to that place over and over again where that love becomes real because when it becomes real to us, it'll break our hearts. And when it breaks them, it'll finally fix them. So I hope that whatever you're bringing to the table this morning, that God brings you there. I hope he brings us all there as many times as he has to because that's how a divided heart is healed. I'll leave you with this quote from Ronald Rollheiser. He said, you must try to pray so that in your prayer you open yourself up in such a way that sometime, perhaps not today, but sometime, you're able to hear God say to you, I love you. These words addressed to you by God are the most important words you will ever hear. Because before you hear them, nothing's ever completely right with you. But after you hear them, something will be right in your life at a very deep level. That's it. And that is all.